Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Cool Zone Media. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. That was a this really a good podcast. deep breath. Just, uh, Thank I just, you. I just have to compliment <laughs> <Thank> you. you. <laughs> it was yep. great. Been working on my deep breaths. Uh, God, I wonder if it makes people think I'm I'm not doing drugs. I'm not even saying that like it's not a wink and a whatever. I think people know that I'm too boring to do drugs. Um, I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, whose last name is totally kind of related to the fact that I don't do drugs. Uh, <laughs> but my guest for this podcast is Chelsea Weber Smith. How are you? I'm doing great and I'm I'm really happy to learn the second half of this story. Yeah. Because well, okay, wait. First, Sophie is our producer. Hi Sophie. What's up? And Ian is our audio engineer. Hi Ian. Hi Ian. Hi Ian. On Woman did our theme music. And this is part two of a two-parter. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, then I guess that's news to you. But everyone else knows that this podcast is usually two-parters on Mondays and Wednesdays. Since today is Wednesday. Whenever you're listening, it's honorarily Wednesday. If you're ever like, man, I wish it was just the middle of the week. You just put on an episode <laughs> of Cool People Do Cool Stuff, and it's either Monday or Wednesday. Everyone's two favorite days, historically. What was I talking about? I'm off script. I'm lost in the wilderness. You were going to do. A, you were going to read the script of your podcast. Oh, that's right. Because I'm a podcaster. So this is part two. We are talking about the Dill Pickle Club, and what we talked about last time was some of the people who started it, including a man who could fuck, and also Hobohemia, and why Margaret doesn't like that name, even though I'm sure the people who were involved in it thought it was the cleverest thing in the world but overall they're pretty cool so we'll let that one slide okay the dill pickle club 
as always, when a group of people try to do a thing and they do a thing together, history tries really hard to only remember one guy. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like half of my research has been like, whenever like, and this was run by this guy. And you're like, okay, who else did it? Yeah. <laughs> Were they actually his peers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. A whole crew of people founded the Dill Pickle Club and they were all wobblies. Jack Jones and Jim Larkin are the two that historians can verify directly with a long list of potential co-founders besides. Some of them were poets and playwrights. Most were soapboxers from Bughouse Square. Our favorite Irish goth labor organizer, Mother Jones, is often listed as a co-founder or like people who are talking. When the picklers talk about the founders, they often mention Mother Jones. There's actually no evidence for this sadly was it like an inspo like she was like an honorary founder because of what she'd already done yeah probably people were just like oh she's so cool she's like the founder you know um i mean i would do that founder yeah Yeah. this podcast was actually founded by not the magazine mother jones but the um the goth irish socialist who i actually disagree with on a bunch of minor bullshit (laughs) from 100 years ago that she was part of and i'm not so actually you should listen to her opinion and not mine uh, There's room for more? everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In the town square. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We would have been debating in Bughouse Square, I'll tell you what. Uh, no, I would have just left with my tail between my legs. <laughs> I mean, like your mother Jones. Sat I'm at good. her feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jack Jones, he is often seen as the kingpin of this whole thing. And he performed three tasks. Well, four. One of them is that he was the owner on paper. And I think by the end, he was often the guy right but he was the master of ceremonies he was the sign painter and like the set painter for a lot of the uh, plays and he was the janitor and you know what if you're gonna be in charge of a place be the fucking janitor too yeah and he grew up jack jones grew up it was a good name i gotta admit hats off to this american name yeah he grew up poor as fuck like most wobblies he worked as a union miner He was a lifelong teetotaler uh, for the classic reason of ain't no way I'm going to turn out like my dad, which I think that Ben Reitman could have learned from that lesson, but you know, whatever. But he had another hobby. He had a lot of hobbies. He was like a hobby guy. One of his hobbies was dynamite. (laughs) Not like, wow, it was great. I'm not using slang here. It was the it was the combination of nitroglycerin and sawdust that he was really excited about. The yeah. red stick with the fuse. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly why he did 10 years in prison for arson, but I do know that at least later he would get arrested for trying to dynamite some of his bosses. So I suspect the arson charges were not wildly dissimilar. <laughs> He's dynamite. That's right. <laughs> And so he's a union guy. He likes not drinking and he likes uh, using direct action to solve problems. Uh, when, his, when his union joined the Wobblies, when the Wobblies were formed, he was in. He was like, fuck yeah. Although later, he followed some like twists and turns through various splits in the movement that I don't really care to recount um, because what he's famous for is ignoring, well, he's not really famous at all, but what he's known for is that he ignored all of those splits and brought everyone together at his club, regardless of like what flavor of leftist or whatever you are respect yeah he was also famous for his ruined left hand and rumors abounded uh the main two contenders was that it was damaged while he was breaking into safes with nitroglycerin 
or that he had been making bombs with the IWW's underground sabotage division. The historian I read was like, and these were probably not true, because after all, he was poor, and what kind of safecracker ends up poor? And I'm like, most of, most of That's them? That's like a very big jump in <laughs> yeah. logic there, yeah. <laughs> and the IWW absolutely had an underground sabotage division. He got arrested for that shit sometimes. So, and he also did nothing to discourage the rumors. Um, he, I, I think it's because he did those things. Uh, <laughs> Probably. More power to him. <laughs> he was a sober bookworm who was outgoing, but always kept a, kept a part of himself reserved. He was a dreamer and a schemer. He was the kind of person who's always trying out some new invention or idea, right? Like, he's like the classic, I swear I'm going to like build a car from scratch and drive it off into the sunset guy. Got it. That classic trope that totally exists and I didn't just make up. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Like, and this led him down some dark paths, unfortunately. Uh, he and his second wife built a boat in the backyard and they took it out for their honeymoon and it was wrecked by a storm and he nearly drowned and his wife did drown. Wow. He had a hard fucking life. Yeah. He spent Ugh. a long time in prison. He was broke as shit. His first wife was far more famous than him. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Uh Far more famous in very specific circles. <laughs> um, <laughs> she was a communist and one of the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union. And but by the time she did like anything that she's famous for, she had already left him for being boring. Um, and before he started the Dill Pickle Club, she's like, "Man, you're kind of boring." And I'm like, "What kind of life do you lead? Where this if man that's is boring?" boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he like at one point they've been married for a while and they were like going around doing labor organizing and he's like why don't you like move in with me and we could like have a life and she's like nah it doesn't sound good so she leaves him hey whatever just sounds like a mismatch of needs yeah exactly it, it neither of them bury each other bad blood uh okay so that's one of the founders the other guy jim larkin and he's the guy who named the club he was going for something that screamed working class and he was a leftist of a completely different origin. He was an Irish Republican, like one of the people who helped Ireland not be part of England anymore. Mm -hmm. He was an Irish man born dirt poor in England who organized dock workers there. And there's a connection I got really excited about when I realized all history is a web. He's a syndicalist. He's, you know, it's a way of organizing people. Organizing dock workers, Irish dock workers in the 1900s, and this led to the solidarity between Irish and Jewish communities that smashed the ever-loving shit out of British fascism in the 1930s, which you can hear about on our episodes of the Battle of Cable Street. Cool, yeah. Thanks, Jim Larkin. Yeah. <laughs> he went from England to Ireland and traveled around a bunch of Ireland, and he formed syndicalist unions among dock workers there. He formed the Irish Labor Party alongside future friend of the pod, James Connolly, um, who's one of the main Irish Republican theorists that sparked the Irish independence movement. And he was executed for his role in the 1916 Eastern, Easter Rising, which I is like close to Roman Empire for me. Like, I mean, actually, Roman Empire is like nothing. I never think about the fucking Roman Empire, besides the fact that they like couldn't get near Ireland because it was too scary. <laughs> Jim Larkin. Or guy, not the not James Connolly. He also formed the Irish Citizen Army. Well, actually, it was him and Connolly, but whatever. Connolly's not part of the story. 
Jim Larkin formed the Irish Citizens Army, a labor militia that joined the Easter Rising. They fought for the principle that, quote, the ownership of Ireland, moral and material, is vested of right in the people of Ireland, and to, quote, sink all difference of birth, property, and creed under the common name of the Irish people. Then, I, Easter Rising hasn't happened yet. His, his friend and a co-organizer hasn't died yet. In 1914, he, there's like this big labor thing that I'm not going to get into in Ireland and it doesn't go great. And like, he just burned the fuck out and he's like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go to America for a while. And, uh, and people are like, you're ditching us. And he's like, whatever, I'm burned out. I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> probably why he survived. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah, and so he goes to America, 1914, and he travels around and he's speaking to syndicalists and to Irish Americans about how, World War I is bad and the Irish shouldn't fight and die for the fucking British, but instead they should fight the British directly. Um, or to quote him directly, because it rules and he had a way with words. <laughs> quote, What has Britain ever done for our people? Whatever we got from her, we rested with struggle and sacrifice. No, men and women of the Irish race, we shall not fight for England. We shall fight f- for the destruction of the British Empire and the construction of an Irish Republic. We shall not fight for the preservation of the enemy, which has laid waste with death and desolation the fields and hills of Ireland for 700 years. We shall fight to free Ireland from the grasp of the vile carcass called England. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's poetry, baby. I know. Okay. <laughs> Here's what I actually think about once a week. I think about the fact that Ireland was colonized for more than 700 years before it won its freedom and started the decolonization process. And as an American, I was told that it's too late for decolonization here, right? I was told that it's been 500 years, get over it. The Irish didn't get the fuck over it. And like, they still haven't totally won, but like decolonization is still a possibility um, and is not over. I think about that once a week, at least. Now I'm going to think about that once a week. (laughs) And then I get like lost how to think about how to say it, you know, because I'm like, ah, what is it? Anyway, but he had trouble making friends in the U.S., Jim Larkin. He shows up in the U.S. and he's like, yeah, I want to talk to the Irish Americans. And the Irish Americans are like, we're with you on hating the British, but you're a fucking commie, <laughs> you know, Oof, yeah. mm-hmm. you're a socialist. We're kind of <laughs> shitty and right wing here. And then he'd go talk to the socialists and they'd be like, wait, you're Catholic. <laughs> and he's like yeah what why is that a problem <laughs> so he had a hard time in the u.s yeah even though he was more of a traditional state communist than an anarchist he got arrested for criminal anarchy in 1919 during the first red scare he defended himself in court there's your bingo square listener <laughs> <laughs> And in court, he was like, look, I believe in Bolshevism, Catholicism, syndicalism, and Irish nationalism. What's so hard about that? Why is this wrong? (laughs) He was convicted. He was sent to Sing Sing Prison in New York, where the strange anarchist superstar Charlie Chaplin visited him, like the most famous man in the world at that point, probably. He was deported in 1923. He goes back to Ireland. And he winds up with like a mixed legacy in Irish politics. Uh, he, he starts by working closely with the USSR and then it, he realizes what most people eventually realize, which is that Stalin is a fuck who didn't let anyone think for himself and his like Catholic syndicalism does not play with Bolshevism in the end and does not play with Stalinism in the end. And the Catholic Church weren't really fond of his communism, 
he is a man between worlds. Yeah, that's hard. I know. But he lived good long life doing amazing things. He died a working class death. He was overseeing some repairs on a building when he fell through the floor at 73 years old. Oh. And like died from his injuries like a little bit later. And he had a big Catholic funeral. And there's a statue of him in Dublin and it has one of his sickest quotes. The great appear great because we are on our knees. Let us rise. That is good. Yeah. This man's a wow. fucking poet. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that might come from the fact that he was basically bullied into writing poetry at the Dill Pickle Club. Oh, nothing like getting bullied into writing poems. That's a beautiful thing. Everyone who was there was like suddenly kind of forced to be a poet, you know? Wow. I will tell you, I did go to grad school mm-hmm. for poetry. Whoa. So I am also here to okay. be your poetry, your poetry train hopper guy. Too many Hell cliches yeah. here. Yeah. Hell Yeah. <laughs> I wrote more poetry back when I rode trains. <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah. They go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're just living life, man. You're in the moment. I know. What I wish I had done is listen to my my father's advice, which was write write a journal. Because I was like, how could I? I'm never going to forget this. This is the most amazing thing. Like, how? I'm never going to. I don't remember half that shit. I don't remember a third of that shit. I have. I think I have some journals. I have journals. I was a journaler. Cool. But it cool. wasn't like, here's what I did today. So it's just like scraps of like yeah. crazy shit. <laughs> Whatever I'm thinking while I'm just doing yeah. just the most dangerous b- behavior. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's that's what I have. But my father's a big advocate of like literally you're like, today I did the following three things. No, I you do know? wish I would have done that. Yeah, yeah, I really do. Yeah. Anyway, he is famous and none of his fame is for running a social club in Chicago. Um, I did not mention, find any mention of the Dill Pickle Club and anything else I read about him, except I've never read a full biography of him or something though, just articles and stuff, except for the book about the Dill Pickle Club, where it talks about his involvement a lot, because he's one of the founders and he's one of the first people there before he's deported for criminal anarchy. And I think it, it matters because people tend to see cultural and political stuff as like two distinct spheres, but the people who are like doing it don't, (laughs) you know? Yeah. You can be a poet and a revolutionist. You can be an actor and a revolutionist. You can have a cool hipster club where you talk about neat ideas and still try to overthrow capitalism in direct and material ways. And along the way, people revolutionize culture. People who actually just set out to revolutionize culture rarely do so. It comes mm. it comes from great passion. People see these like art and cultural movements and just imitate the aesthetics without seeing what's underneath. And you, you wind up with like a pale imitation. I would argue that jazz mattered because it came from black struggle and so people pick up on the like aesthetic of it and run with it but they don't have that heart and it's hollow you know yeah, it's like slumming and yeah the jazz clubs kind of yeah you know which was so popular yeah. which also ah, but then that was also so important because without the sort of racial mixing that occurred through those relationships it's just yeah History is complicated, and I do think yeah. that's like the most important thing to get across. Every moment is as complicated as the one we're in. No, totally. And I think that it's like, so it becomes less about being like, cultures must stay distinct, and mm-hmm. more like, what is the heart of this thing? You mm-hmm. know, and like, how can people who, yeah, no, I, no. And yeah, like, how do you hold up the heart of the thing while still contributing your own? Yeah, it's a, yeah. it's, Big, these are big questions. These are like the questions artists have been asking time immemorial. It's true. Yeah. 
And they could have asked them at the Dill Pickle Club. And then people would have heckled them. <laughs> Those are the two known founders. Um, there's, there were more, and just no one's sure. Uh, but there was one figure who was prominent through its entire heyday, the guy we talked about earlier, the fuckboy hobo doctor, Den- Ben Reitman. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't there at the start, but he's around soon enough. By 1917, he's around on the scene, and he is working his PR magic on the place. He's talking to journalists, he's getting people there, and he's turning it into a thing. He turns it from a like, from a, a place where some wobblies argue about politics to like this like cultural hub that changes Chicago's understanding of the world. This includes bringing out highbrow folks to mingle, but he actually worked really hard to make sure it stayed working class. And he like, it was a place for the low life. You know, you could come slum, but it wasn't going to be yours, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which makes sense. He's the hobo doctor. He knows how to run in the upper class, but he is like yeah. not an upper class man. Uh, the homeless, the unemployed drifters, and therefore a lot of disabled folks were a huge part of the clientele. To quote historian Franklin Rosemont, who wrote the book on the Dill Pickle Club, it was Reitman, more than anyone else, who perfected the definitive and wonderful, wonderfully improbable dill pickle mix that brought together wobblies and opera stars, poets and scientists, professors and prostitutes, hobos and psychoanalysts, con men and crackpots. And as for when they started it, no one actually knows when they started it. But you know what? Also, well, actually, capitalism started with the enclosure of the commons in England, I would feel. Uh, I was going to do an ad transition about no one knows when ads started. <laughs> I bet there's graf- I bet you I bet there's old handbills from the Roman Empire. Oh with, yeah. With ads on them. But I wouldn't know. Because I've never seen the TV show, Rome. (laughs) Sophie, were there ads in Rome? Sophie said yes. I don't think about the Roman Empire, sorry. No, I'm talking about the TV show. (laughs) I definitely don't think about the TV show. Yeah, I've never seen it. Well, but you know what I am going to see or listen to or buy? Whatever comes after the end of the sentence. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Could just be me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. 
At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count and we're back. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> I enjoy seeing how far I can push this. <laughs> really beautiful transition, natural as anything. <laughs> so the most likely start date is 1914, but some people say it was 1915, 1916, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's the kind of thing that looking back doesn't really matter. I'm sure it matters, but it doesn't matter to me. It probably started in late autumn, which lines up with when Jim Larkin came from Ireland. Uh, And it probably started as a way for soapboxers to get, to be able to keep doing their thing during the winter, right? It's hard to soapbox in a Chicago winter, Um, which will change in probably about another 10 years or so when winter is a vague memory. That's, we have that to look forward to. It probably started, the Dill Pickle Club probably started way too seriously. It was like a labor forum in a tea room called The Copper Kettle and the Dill Pickle, which is too long. If anyone's listening, (laughs) that's too long. It was only open on weekends to start. And then in 1917, the landlord raised the rent and then it moved to its real home, 18 Tooker Alley. At this point, it stopped being a clubhouse only for Wobblies and their friends and started to become a bonafide social club and cultural cornerstone. It was in a barn in the alley, which is a thing that does not make sense in my modern conception of how cities work. But it was. It was in a barn in an alley. Over the years, they bought a bunch of other barns and like hauled them over and like constantly rearranged the whole place by sticking all the things together in different ways whenever they like got bored, I guess. <laughs> and it it seems like it would be a hole in the wall, right? With everything that we're gonna be describing, this place in a barn in an alley. The main lecture hall held 700 people. Wow. Yeah. Um, Wow, okay. I suspect that it was not like a lot of like fire code enforcement. No. In 1917. Sitting on a lot of hay bales, just waiting to erupt in flames. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, this could have gone real different, this story. (laughs) (laughs) The entrance to the alley had a green light. Uh, I believe it is green like a pickle. I think that's the idea. Cute. And then... The building itself had two notable signs. On the outside, on its orange door, lit by another green light, which sounds garish as fuck. (laughs) And I think that this sign is literally like just giant letters carved into the entire door, but I'm not sure. Um, There's no photos of this, and there's like some illustrations that I've seen. It says, Step high, stoop low, and leave your dignity outside. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) And then once you were in the entryway, the next sign said, elevate your mind to a lower level of thinking. 
Great. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's great chaos energy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> the single most characteristic thing about the Dill Pickle Club was the diversity of its clientele. Uh, those who started it and, and ran it were working class leftist revolutionaries of a mix of different ideological positions. The people who showed up were all sorts, and ideas of all sorts were allowed. Atheists debated breakaway Catholics, debated the spiritualists, Buddhists and Hindus spoke regularly. It was queer-friendly and multiracial when both of those things were far from the norm in the U.S. This is decades before, well, as you pointed out, you know more actually about this period than I do, but I'm, I'm saying this is decades before there's a recognizable LGBT rights movement in the U.S. Definitely, yeah. And it comes just after the peak of white labor, the white labor movement's like racism problem, which I want to say like peaked in like probably the 1890s, 19 aughts. Um, IWW had a lot of success by being like, you fucking bullshit racist. Look, we're organizing all the different like people of color and like, Mm -hmm. you know, we actually rule. Anyway, for a long time, it was the only integrated club on the north side of Chicago. They had talks by black presenters with names like Jazz, the Hope of the Nation, and Moorish Contributions to Present Civilization. Folks from all over the world came to present about their experiences and lives. Like, if you're you're an immigrant from anywhere in the world, you'd come and, like, talk about, like, here's where it's like where I'm from, you know? Birth control was discussed openly, despite people going to jail for talking about it at the time, right? Mm -hmm. Magnus Hirschfeld probably the single most influential figure in LGBT history. Honestly, I, I haven't come up with a competing person who had more of an impact. He's the, he's a guy who ran the, the gender clinic in, in pre-Nazi Germany. Right. He came and he spoke there in 1931 and it was the largest crowd the club ever gathered in its history. Wow. Um, the Catholic anarchist Dorothy Day, who later founded the Catholic Worker Movement, was a regular there and I think an organizer. And this was before she like, kind of like, I don't know as much about her yet as I want to, but like, this was before she like got really Catholic and she was just like a hard drinking journalist. <laughs> People talked about political issues, religious issues, cultural issues, art, everything. There were lectures on every conceivable topic from cesarean sections to physics. Probably the first discussions of surrealism in Chicago were held there. Like, the guy who maybe found the North Pole. There's this, this big dumb fight. This actually seems like the kind of thing that you heard this. Like there's like two different guys who were like, I found the North Pole. No, I found I the North not, Pole. I have not heard about this. Like the guy who claims that he did it first, who probably didn't. He came and gave a talk about finding the North Pole and shit. You know. Again, chaos energy. Yeah, <laughs> throw total, it all in there. Totally. See what happens. Yeah. <laughs> The New York Tribune was like trying to talk shit, so they referred to his clientele. They said it, quote, equally attended by North Shore Society leaders, pickpockets, morons, soapbox theists, University of Chicago professors, and derelicts of all kinds. They just made it sound cool. I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jack Jones, the janitor, said, quote, more famous people in all lines of creative work have passed through the dill pickle than through any 50 universities in the world. Wow. But they also, like, you couldn't, no matter how, like, famous and well-respected you are, like, you are, like, the same as everyone else, and you're going to get... Apparently, the hecklers, like, waited until you were done and then heckled you. Well, that's like, nice. <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> there was a dill pickle gallery of art on the walls because uh, apparently you could pay your debt to the house with a painting. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I love this place. I know. <laughs> it was ostensibly a tea house, and you could get cheap sandwiches and all kinds of non-alcoholic drinks there. I've read different accounts of whether or not the mob muscled in in the 20s and started to serve mm. alcohol. I know that they tried. I currently lean towards they didn't succeed, but I'll talk about that more later as we talk about okay. the, the end of it. But no one was coming there for the food or the drinks. People came to feel like they were part of something and to discuss the issues of the day. Like, imagine if Twitter was, like, a good place, you know? Yeah, like, imagine that. Not even in the, like, like, this is better than pre-Elon Twitter, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> better than threads. Yeah. Yeah, God. Sorry, Zuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just please fight it out and both, both die. Uh, <laughs> legally. Some of the... Okay, some of the debates that they had were like formal debates, like that whole fucking thing that I don't understand because I wasn't on my high school debate team. But one of the things that they would do is they'd have these formal debates where like the hobos and wobblies which is like school university debate teams on a regular basis. Ugh. Ugh. Debate teams started showing up just to watch it happen and take notes from the rail riding union organizers about how to fucking debate. Wow. Yeah. It's probably because they actually had passion and, uh, yeah. you know, weren't just reading from some boring ass dissertation. Totally. You know? It's how you got to do it. You yeah. got to hide the medicine. That's what we say. You got to be exciting. You got to be fun. Yeah. But that gets dangerous too. Yeah. Charisma. <laughs> no, it's true. And like, yeah, no. And, and I feel like they avoided a lot of the like star worship thing by having like a ton of characters you know yeah. you'd go there and it wouldn't be just to see ben reitman speak or jack jones or uh lucy parsons or or any of these people everyone you could go be a character you know you could like yeah. build an identity and build a like culture and, and i don't know you know what it kind of makes mm -hmm. me think of is like it's some kind of like political vaudeville it's like yeah i don't know yeah which is also huge at this time totally so it would make sense that there were like some cultural exchange like in terms of structure happening there yeah no totally yeah and also and we talk about the the medicine that has to go down it was a it was a free speech and debate and exchange of ideas forum right but it was tinged with humor mm -hmm. and everything was like kind of stand-up comedy-ish on some level. There's one category of people who you actually could go there if you wanted and be like, I'm going to go advocate for law and order or fascism or uh, like like anything. Like at one point, someone was like, I guess you could go there and argue for misogyny. Everyone would just tear you apart, you know? Mm -hmm. Overall, and I, I wish I knew more about how they made this happen. It was a free speech zone, like a literal actual one where the people who didn't want to use it were the authoritarians. Fascists, mm. Stalinists, cops, and organized criminals largely stayed clear. Wow. Okay. Okay. And like, I don't know. I, I, I like want to know how they threaded that needle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because now you have like the people who are like, debate me, are like bad people. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I wonder if it's because, like, if your debate cannot be televised, 
You know, mm-hmm. there's no way for you mm-hmm. to like gather a complacent, distant audience. Like yeah. everyone is there feeling the energy of people being like, your ideas suck, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They did way more than debates and, and whatever. They, every Saturday night were dances and the orchestra was whatever musicians were in the house that night. Oh, yeah. love it. Yeah. What a place. People came, as we kind of talked about this before, but it's in my script, so I'm going forward with it. People also came to be around the sort of characters of a sort we don't have as much today. Um, and some episode or another, we talked about Emperor Norton and the San Francisco characters. Do you heard of Emperor Norton? I haven't. No. Oh, he was this guy who like may or may not have been homeless, who declared himself the emperor of the United States and Mexico and like wrote pardons and laws and shit and was like actually this like anti-racist crusader and organizer. Um Wow. But he was just this guy in 19th century San Francisco. It's a character. Yeah. <laughs> Chicago had its like own characters, right? Some of the founders of the place were some of these characters. A ton of the people who were the characters didn't make their way into their history books. And so there's all these like the surfessor who I didn't actually seem interesting enough to really include in my script much. Uh, Martha Beegler and Elizabeth Davis, who I don't know anything about. But, you know, people are like, holy shit, we're going in. Martha, Martha Beegler's there, you know? And... And it was a place where a neurodivergence was celebrated as a strength by having this sort of like character-based thing. Because it wasn't, let's go make fun of these people, you know? Mm -hmm. A ton of the Chicago poets started hanging out there as teenagers while they were still in high school. A ton of high school students went there because it wasn't a bar and the food was cheap. So there you go. It's the place to be. It's like the mall. I know, right? If the mall was like, (laughs) The crazy awesome place. Like, yeah, like. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, imagine just like dropping off your kid being like, have fun at the big, <laughs> the big pickle. It's the dual pickle, yeah. mom. <laughs> Come on, mom. <laughs> yeah. Hurry up and leave the carriage or whatever. Mom, right? I'm an anarchist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, dear. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not too anarchist for me to give you enough money for one of those sandwiches, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, mom. <laughs> <laughs> They sometimes put on three plays a week at this place. Sunday night was like play night, but sometimes up to three night plays a week. For a while, they were the most active small theater in the city. I think small theater is like a specific designation of a type of theater, but I, I think it's the equivalent of off-Broadway, but for other cities mm-hmm. or in the 1920s or something, I don't know. Um, it had its own troupe. They put on all the big name plays, but they also put on plays from local playwrights. And... And they had music nights. They ranged from hobo songs to opera to jazz to Eastern European folk music. And um, its heyday was like 1917 to like the mid to late 1920s. Jack Jones, the ringleader and janitor, he got arrested more and more in connection to running the place. And the cops fucking hated this place. Um, And as for how it fell apart, I guess it, well, depends on who you ask. Uh, for example, if you were to ask Sophie, Sophie would say, now is the time to do ads. And then it doesn't actually even tie into what I was saying. It's just an awkward ad transition, which is what you come here for. Why? Why won't you just leave me in peace? Why must I always do these ad transitions? Even if you subscribe to Cooler Zone Media, then you get the best of both worlds because I still have to performatively describe the anti-capitalist struggle with running a platform that has ads 
But then you don't have to listen to the ads. It really is just the best thing you can do. Where am I going? Here's some ads. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count and we're back So, by the late 1920s, there's like a bunch of copycats. And it's funny because like if you read some of the people talking about like all these fucking poser clubs, like blah, blah, blah. And then other people were like, like Ben Reitman is like, it's great. Other people are doing it now. Isn't that the point? You know, because he's just like, yeah, (laughs) actually earnestly excited about it. But then he actually lists which of the copycats are like good and which ones are like total poser clubs that suck. You know, (laughs) nothing changes. I know. know? I know. (laughs) And some of them are like more specialized. There's ones that are actually speakeasies, you know, and and all these different things. But yeah, its model expanded across Chicago. And once it was no longer the only game in town, like the culture started to change. And some of the the characters were the people who would kind of go and spin off their own clubs, you know? Mm -hmm. Most of the others failed faster because a lot of them lacked that that heart that we're talking about where they actually come from something, you know, because if someone random centrist or right-wing person is like, Oh, I'm going to start my new free speech forum. And you're like, Oh, it's going to, it's going to go terribly. Yeah. You know, because it, it goes to this, uh, this theory that I have that I haven't seen proven wrong yet, which is that new aesthetics are new aesthetic ideas are pushed by radicals and free thinkers. And then people copy the aesthetics, but not the heart. I kind of already mentioned this, but mm-hmm. I just think about this, like, this is another thing I think about. Probably not once a week. This is a, like, intensely for a week once a year is this type of thought. (laughs) Where, like, you pick a culture or a genre of, like, fiction or music or or living, and you can find the, like, radical roots of it. and And then you see just the aesthetic as what is then packaged and sold to people, you know? 
Yeah, I think drag is a really good example of that, too, because we yeah. just did a drag queen series and starting around this time, Harlem Renaissance, uh-huh. drag queens, you know, co-opted by hipsters, white hipsters, suddenly slowly take over the drag scene. You know, yeah. it's kind of a typical uh, typical cycle that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, if you just see the like, yeah, if you just see the aesthetic trappings, then you copy that because that's the easiest thing to figure out to copy, you know? Yeah. As compared to like copying the like way of thinking for yourself and like applying it to your problems, which if you come from a different background will give you a different aesthetic result. But that's good. We can create a beautiful, chaotic, lovely mess of culture that I want to live in. Yeah. And it's like you want to get have those things passed down even if they're in copy form, which is like unfortunate, but what's the alternative, I guess, is like we adopt aesthetics and hopefully adopting those aesthetics leads us back to their roots versus fighting against the aesthetic. You know, it's complicated. No, that that makes sense. I mean, like, yeah, look at punk. Like punk is like a, yeah. like I think two of the most obvious, like, like anyone who doesn't know that punk and hip hop both come from like real radical shit, like just like really missed the memo because like, yeah. it's like pretty... They're pretty forward about that, you know? Yeah, it's like a suburban kid's like, whoa, that's a cool anarchist patch. What's that? Yeah. I don't know. It's like, okay, totally. do that with your time. Good. Yeah. No, absolutely. You're, no, you're right. And that like sometimes you can encapsulate the message into the aesthetics and like lead people back to it. That's, yeah. And sometimes it destroys the whole thing. So yeah. It's, you know, different, than, different, uh, different strokes, I guess. Whenever people are like, I know the answer to, I have the solutions to things. And I'm like, you clearly don't because we haven't gotten out of this mess yet. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not hanging out with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, so the Dill Pickle Club, by the mid to late 1920s, it's struggling. And it is no longer the like main happening place. And I suspect it was never incredibly good at making money. I mean, they had, they had the people showing up. So clearly, you know, and they did it right. And they had a lot of support. But Jack Jones, he is nothing if not a schemer and an optimist. He's the kind of guy who builds a boat in his backyard while running a club that he started after he blew off his, messed up his hand with nitroglycerin, you know? Yeah. And so he kept like publishing papers that were like, it's bigger and better than ever. We're going to have these like bold, new, amazing things. And it, it just wasn't true anymore. And then like the way he decided he was going to save the place, this is the most this guy energy thing he's going to do his entire life. He tries to market a self-walking dill pickle duck toy. Oh, that's that's great. I, I feel like this was the era of like novelty t- like yeah. toys and pranks and stuff. I just got a book about novelty toys. Ooh, and I awesome. bet that that's uh I bet that's what's happening here. It's like the whoopee cushion era. Yeah, exactly. Fuck yeah. Like the chattering teeth. Yeah. Those types of just stupid bullshit that we love so much. Yeah. So he, he creates the do-dill duck, which uh, the like rumor among picklers, I, I'm i not going to give this one too much credence, <laughs> that it was the inspiration for Donald Duck. <laughs> I mean, stranger things have happened and Disney yeah, was clearly all about robbing the public domain and then putting it into the copyright. Yeah. But... The do dill duck didn't go anywhere, despite being self-walking. Eh? And let me tell you, if your cafe is struggling, probably inventing a duck isn't the way out of it. No. 
could have had a walking pickle. What did it look like? Do we have like pictures of this? There's like some sketches. It's like kind of boxy. It's um, what's it called again? Do D U dash D I L duck. Uh, let me just see this sketch. Oh, that, okay. So it's got a like a little bit of that duck or the little bird that dips its head into water vibe. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. That, yeah, the the drinking that, duck that I think of from The, the Simpsons. The drinking bird, yeah. All right. Yeah, although actually now that I've looked this up, it claims that it was invented and cop- copyrighted 1922 by Jack Jones. It's a picture wow. of a, a duck and it says, I walk with a shimmy and wiggle my bill. I wobble my head to give young folks a thrill. I'm just made of wood, but I'm sure to bring luck to those who possess this ungainly old duck. Aww. Nothing more thrilling than yeah. that duck. <laughs> I take back everything I said about being good to force people to write poetry. <laughs> no, nah, it's a joke. I think it's a great poem. The meter uh, was good. Yeah. yeah. And okay, I've read a bunch of different versions of how the Dill Pickle Club met its end. And a lot of them are like, oh, you know, cycles of hipsters and blah, blah, blah. I find one the most convincing. And so that's the one that I'm going to use. And it is what Ben Reitman said happened. And basically it's like, all right, Jack Jones, he hates alcohol and he's like real committed to his ethics, right? You don't become a, I mean, you don't live this guy's life if you're not like willing to take some risks to live by your ethics, you know? Yeah. And the mobsters in the next neighborhood over are getting more and more powerful as prohibition goes on. And they keep trying to muscle in on the place and they want their guys as waiters so they can do bootlegging and take a cut of the action. And the only like argument is whether or not they succeeded ever or not, you know? But Jack Jones won't, he, he won't go for it. Either it happens and he keeps fighting back or it doesn't happen at all. And my money is didn't happen at all. And he goes to the politicians. He's like, you got to protect me from the mafia. And they're like, we're not going to fucking help you unless you bribe us. They probably didn't phrase yeah, it that way. Yeah, because the mafia will. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> the mafia takeover will make money. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he writes a $500 check to a politician, but then his conscience wins out and he stops payment on the check before it's cashed. So the politicians, who are probably in bed with the mafia, Chicago is fucking notorious for this, they dredge up an old law that a dance hall can't be within 100 feet of a church. And in 1933, they shut it down. Mm-hmm. That sounds totally plausible. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like literally the only, because everything else that I've read is like kind of vague, being like, oh, I just kind of fell off the map and, you know, the neighborhood is gentrified and, or like, I don't know. I find this the most convincing mm-hmm. argument. Yeah. But it left a hell of a legacy. It was the working class underbelly of what gets called the Chicago Renaissance, which tends to focus instead on the like upper middle class and such like that elements of it. And it was this, you know, just huge cultural touchstone that started with some working class revolutionaries from the mining camps and from Ireland, atheists and theists, socialists and anarchists, poets and actors. And I will say to like close this out, there's one place in my life that I've been to that feels the closest to the dill pickle. And I just want to shout them out. There's a worker cooperative bookstore and cafe in Baltimore called Red Emma's. 
Um, I've been there. Yeah. Sorry, I just randomly have been there. No, no, that's <laughs> so cool. One time I went to Baltimore. It was so cool there. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's cool is the lineage is actually clear here. It is named after Emma Goldman, uh, who taught Ben Reitman everything he knew. Red Emma's is a majority POC, rat, like POC-owned radical space where ideas all across the left are discussed, where people go to just be. And it really kind of does that magical stuff that cities do best. I say this as someone who doesn't live in a city anymore, but there's like something specific about this like way of creating culture and like having characters and like bringing people together um, that cities really do amazingly. Uh, and I think Red Emma's does an amazing job of it. And I will say, also, they sell books online. So if you want a good place to get your books, you should go to redemmas.org and they have like an amazing selection. Um, and there's also like kind of a another direct lineage in that the sh- Chicago Surrealists, uh, Franklin Rosemont, who wrote the book about the Dill Pickle Club, was actually a fairly, I actually checked with one of my friends who runs Red Emma's right before I recorded this episode and she was like, yeah, no, the Dill Pickle Club was absolutely a like conscious thing that we were thinking about when we started this place and wow. about 20 years ago now. So they have actually outlasted um, the original Dill Pickle Club by a couple years. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. And they're on their like fourth building because they keep getting like, you know, it's hard to be a worker cooperative bookstore, you know? Yeah. But now they own their building and it's been put into a land trust. So... They're fucking, awesome. you should go check out Red Emma's if you're anywhere near Baltimore or you should buy their books. That's the Dill Pickle Club. I never thought I'd be doing an episode that was like, let me tell you about a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah, this was so fun. Yeah, I, ah, I, I'm just left with the deep sadness that I could never go there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> At least we can go to Red Emma's. There's lots of places like it, but it does sound like the energy of that time. Like we said, like the vaudeville yeah. um, character-driven energy is so what I want in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just wish I could have been there. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it sounds like it was a mix of so many different important parts of like the ni- 19-teens going into the 20s. It's like yeah. just... Uh, Really big changes happening there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, about to hit on like a to- total changes in American culture that would like, you know, talking about PR, talking about capitalism and all those things. I feel like, you know, the 20s are coming and it's going to change everything positively, negatively. But the roots seem to be, you know, in these radical movements. Yeah. Uh, that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I love that it's this behind the scenes thing thing like this like you know it's all these people who are like or all these movements that are much known much better known for their other work you know and then being like but there's actually these like nexuses that bring all these people together and like so jack jones didn't you know overthrow uh english rule of ireland the way that jim larkin did or something right but like he cleaned up after a place where everyone came together and maybe Jim yeah. Larkin, who has that fucking amazing way of putting things, maybe he developed that dill pickle club. Or maybe he walked in as a ringer and he was like, whatever, I, I got this shit, you know, whatever, I don't care. Um, yeah. And maybe there's a lesson in terms of how 
to make politics fun, yeah. right? It doesn't have to be a boring conversation. It doesn't even have to be a battle on Twitter. It can be, you know, sharing space with people and having conversations that are fun and watching shows and reading yeah. each other's zines. <laughs> and, you know, it's a, there's a lot of joy in in political movements. And I think that gets lost in kind of the grimness of it all. Totally. And I also think that there's something about the fact that they like, they listen to each other. Like even when they like would heckle yeah. each other and be like, no, you're fucking wrong. You piece of shit. But they, they'd be like, you piece of shit, but you're like my piece of shit. You know, like, like it was yeah. like, <laughs> and, and that's something that I feel like we've really lost. Um, and we need to bring back. And I think it partly it's because it happens in person. You know, where like yes. the kinds of things that people say to us online are not the kinds of things that people, I mean, sometimes people like driving past me, moving cars will yell the kinds of things that people say to me on Twitter, you know, but like. But that's because they're not looking in your eyes. Yeah. They're not looking in your face. Totally. Yeah. Yep. And like, we actually need to learn to respect diverse opinions. And like, even when we're like, no, your opinion is fucking wrong. But it's like, I hate your opinion, not I hate you. Unless yeah. you're like, you know trying to murder everyone or whatever, right? But like, instead of being like, I don't know, I don't know, whatever, I clearly like... No, it's true. It's like always been kind of the the saddest part of leftism is just the the continued infighting yeah. that keeps derailing things. And, you know, I mean, this the, the Dill Pickle Club makes me think of the Rainbow Coalition. Fred Hampton's yeah, Rainbow Coalition absolutely. for the Black Panthers was just like, let's bring together, you know, all types of people. Let's bring together like these hillbillies, as you know, yeah, they were called at the, the time, and, and they're going to be flying their Confederate flags. Yeah. And like, we're going to have the Black Panthers yell at you about why that's fucked up. And then they're like, you know what? We're not bringing the Confederate flag. Oh, did anymore. that happen? You know, just like, I've talked about them yes. on the show. I didn't know that they ever put down the Confederate flag. That's amazing. They did. They did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, history's hard, but according to yeah. my research and what I found out, they did yeah. end up retiring the flag and uh, Good on them. standing together. Yeah. You know? Breakfast for kids. Yeah. Revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, if people want to learn about stuff, I no, my, my ability to do smooth transitions was destroyed somewhere earlier today. Um, <laughs> Do you have anything you want to plug here at the end of the show? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll just, my podcast, American Hysteria. Um, if you like this show, I really think you'll like our show. Um, we cover moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes and crazes all through kind of a sociological lens and how they affected culture and culture affected them. Um, and uh, I do think there's a lot in common very research-based so if you're an obsessive researcher um i think you'll like it too hell yeah what do i have to plug i'm doing a bunch club. of what book club oh yeah i started a book club um it's funny to say it like it was in the past when it's actually in the future for me <laughs> cool zone book club every sunday on both this feed and the it could happen here feed is Fiction, story, culture, uh, the kind of stuff that also matters, you know, and in, is hosted by me, and I read stories. And the first month of it is going to be one of my novellas called The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion, which is the first book in the Danielle Kane series, and it is uh, about a squatted town that is ruled over by a three-antlered deer that the anarchists summoned to try and keep the town safe. 
and it is good. You might like it. And I read it to Robert Evans. And then after that, (laughs) I'm going to read other stories. Most of them won't be by me. They could even be by you. But I don't know how to tell you to submit yet because we haven't figured that stuff out yet. Just make it really good and have it come on my radar naturally. That's the way to submit. Get get good at writing fiction. Get good. Yeah. Be as good at words as Jim Larkin and better than me. Sophie, what you got to plug? That. That's what I have to plug. You did it. Hell yeah. All right. Well, I'll see you all either Sunday or Monday or Wednesday or whatever day of the week you listen to another episode of Cool People Did Cool Stuff. People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rule. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.